Each stage of a woman's life brings new possibilities, exciting choices, and sometimes difficult challenges. At Astellis, we understand women want solutions that enable a life of continued possibilities. We will work to elevate the conversation around women's midlife health and provide resources that demonstrate our commitment to women's changing healthcare needs during this stage. Women's Health at Astellis, powering possibilities for women in midlife. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Talks Podcasts. My name is Dawn Davis. I'm a professor of dermatology and pediatrics at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And it's my pleasure and privilege to have a discussion about menopause, what it is and its importance with my colleague, friend and expert, Dr. Jackie Thielen. Jackie, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? I'm a, been a member of the Mayo Clinic staff, it seems like forever, but it actually has been since 1994. Back in the day, it was about 2005 when I had the opportunity to assist the clinic in opening the Women's Health Clinic. That was a clinic that was specialized in menopause and sexual health. Since that time, I watched this practice grow to the point where now here in Florida, I've been able um, and blessed to help found the Women's Health Specialty Clinic here on the Florida campus. It certainly has been a labor of love for me all these years, and it's exciting to teach women, but also providers about what menopause is and the importance of caring for women, especially during this difficult time. Well, thank you very much for advocating for and caring for our female patients. It's so important. So why is it important that we talk about menopause? You know, I think it's very important because in general, Women don't really know their bodies. And subsequently, because there's been so much controversy about hormone therapy, um, for example, in the early 2000s, that now providers are uncertain about it or have misunderstood the research. So the goal of hopefully this podcast today is really to clarify some of those basic informations about menopause. But, you know, menopause, again, it's a process that every woman will go through, but we don't spell it out and women can be quite troubled by it and not look out for help when they really should try to get better. So women should really try to be supportive in seeking answers to make their lives better. Yeah, I think it's really important for us as healthcare professionals and also for our patient audience to know that there are ways that we can help women in this important time of life. So I look forward to our discussion so we can empower women and empower our colleagues to help them. So why don't we start at the very beginning, Jackie? The very basics. What is menopause? You know, before I answer that question, I think it's important to review the normal function. As physicians, of course, we recognize that women at their early teens start producing an egg, and that is done by the fluctuation of the hormonal, I guess I call it a dance, between the pituitary gland and the ovaries. The use of hormones like follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone certainly help us do that. But the ovarian function is more than just the reproductive part, it's really how it produces this hormone called estrogen, of course, estradiol primarily. And what I find fascinating is that we have estrogen receptors in every part of the 
female body in terms of the different organ systems. So with menopause, what that really is, is the loss of fertility or the loss of that hormonal dance. And so by definition, a natural menopause is when you go 12 months in a row without a period. That's simple, or it should be simple. The difficulty is that that doesn't happen overnight. There's a process called perimenopause where the ovaries are starting to change and we see fluctuation, but you may not see changes in the menstrual cycle yet. You actually may have symptoms before the menses start to change. For other women, it clearly is a menstrual cycle change first, be it heavier periods, lighter periods, missed periods, irregular bleeding. So that perimenopause part is really a time that we sort of forget because everybody's worried about menopause. Well, yes, menopause symptoms can still happen beyond those 12 months without a period. But for many women, it's that transitional time that can be very troubling. Sometimes dancing to sitting down on the sidelines. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, I tell people that usually in my office, I'm talking about your whole life. You've gone hormonally from the first floor to the second floor and back to the first floor. Well, now occasionally you make it into the basement and eventually you end up staying in the basement. Now, the good news is that you're not underground. So that's yeah. great news that we're not stuck in the basement and we're, we're not, not stuck in the basement. And clearly we recognize that we still make hormones and specifically estrogen in our peripheral fat in our adrenal glands. That's why we're in the basement, but not underground. Well, we've been talking a lot about estrogen, but as okay. you and I both know, testosterone, which is usually attributed to men is present in women to some degree. And that's a really important thing. So does testosterone play a role at all in menopause? Does it change at all? Can you comment on testosterone? Well, it's very interesting because I get a lot of women asking about testosterone. And yes, typically both men and women have testosterone, but women have a very much smaller amount of testosterone in our bodies comparatively, of course, to men. And interesting enough, there isn't a significant drop in testosterone levels during menopause as it is in estrogen. The ovaries produce about one-fourth of a female's testosterone. So we're still making testosterone in our adrenal glands and peripheral tissues as well. So for women, it's really the relationship between estrogen and testosterone that changes. So that testosterone as an androgen is relatively at a higher level than, of course, we had had previously. So that's when women start to see symptoms that are influenced by that, such as facial hair growth or female pattern hair loss. But overall, as far as the symptoms of menopause, the research is really showing that we don't really think testosterone is a big player. It has perhaps some influence on libido, but I will tell you that the research shows that level of testosterone does not correlate with level of libido. So testosterone has a more relative importance simply because it's sitting still versus estrogen is decreasing. Correct. Correct. Very interesting. Well, what can we ladies expect with regards to our body changes in menopause? I'm not sure if I should plug my ears or I should be. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I do say knowledge is power, right? right? And I think that's the problem is that women are fearful because they don't know what to expect. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to educate our female patients as well as their male partners as to what to expect. 
Estrogen receptors, as I mentioned before, are everywhere. So subsequently, women can have symptoms with that hormonal loss pretty much everywhere. So if we look at things that we feel and things that we don't feel, don't feel, of course, is your bones. But we know bones, of course, like estrogen. So with menopause, there is a loss of bone density. Doesn't sound like a big deal unless it's significant. And it's hard to know in a particular person. But of course, as physicians, we look at their other risk factors, their history of thyroid disease, family history, so on, to help us guide what treatment is needed. Because estrogen, yes, is still a potential player in treatment if there is concern for a elevated fracture risk. That being said, the bones certainly, it's important, but we also encourage women around this time to make sure they're getting weight-bearing activity, as well as being very nutritionally conscious about their calcium and, and vitamin D exposure. So bone density is one. Blood vessels also change. Is that related to hormonal change or is that aging? Of course, it's probably blurred over the two. But I, I'd like to say that blood vessels seem to lose their elasticity as we age. And so that, of course, is problematic with regards to cardiovascular as well as cerebrovascular disease over time. Of course, let's go a little bit more south to the vaginal changes that women experience. Those mucosal cells are less in number in general over time. Now, that can be a symptom early or it can be a symptom later in menopause. About 50% of women will have some vaginal change. Now, not every woman has vaginal dryness or vaginal pain, but obviously many of them do. And it is important to address. The changes to hair and skin, you know, certainly women, well, it's a billion dollar plus business trying to get us looking younger and our skin feeling better. Every commercial pretty much is about hair and skin. Unfortunately, Part of that is aging as well, but certainly the estrogen loss has a significant role in that. And let's not forget the brain, which I think is probably the most interesting organ with regards to hormonal loss, because there's so much that's controlled by the brain, mood, cognitive thinking, attention, memory. We see a lot of potential influences with that hormonal loss. Interesting. If women choose to get pregnant, oftentimes they have symptoms related to hormonal fluctuations. Do they kind of mirror those again when they're perimenopausal? Like, oh, I had mood swings in pregnancy, now they're back. Or I had difficulty sleeping in pregnancy, now it's back. Does it remind women of that time of pregnancy or it's not necessarily related or similar? It's not necessarily related, but I will say to women that if they did have symptoms, especially in those postpartum circumstances, that that hormonal disruption, if they're susceptible to that in a postpartum state, they are more at risk, let's say, in a menopausal state to have a recurrence of that level of depression. And so it is important to note, although it's not an absolute. That's helpful. So since we've talked about body changes and times of life when women feel like they're not necessarily themselves or they're getting a new self, if you will, what are some of the most common symptoms that women notice and have concerns about? Immediately, it's the issues with changes in your period. 
women are, if they're often regular, all of a sudden their periods are heavy or they missed a period. And more often than not, it's about heaviness. That sometimes is the reason why they end up in the office. The other symptoms like hot flashes and night sweats, it depends. It's on a continuum. Some women are extremely bothered. Others, not so much. It's a very individualized thing. Some will have hot flashes during the day, but not at night. Others will primarily be bothered at night, but not during the day. Others have, unfortunately, hot flashes and night sweats all the time. And you can't really compare from one, one, one woman to another woman. And so it really is about the individual. Sleep, of course, can be disrupted. Usually it's not so much about getting to sleep. More of the issue is about staying asleep sleep maintenance. And of course, probably every woman that comes into my office brings up weight gain. That frustration of seeing their body shape change from that pear to the apple. They're seeing a tummy where they didn't have one before. And even worse, what they're saying is that it's difficult to lose the weight. It was easier to lose weight before. And so in essence, what used to work isn't working anymore. So they're quite frustrated by that. And of course, we all are very good at educating our patients that added weight means added risk, cardiovascularly, especially diabetic risk. And so women have become very conscious about even just gaining five, 10 pounds. And as we mentioned with regards to the postpartum depression piece, Mood disruption is very common. It may be as subtle as just irritability, but it can be more than that. Increase in anxiety or anxiousness that they didn't previously experience. Simple things, quote unquote, simple, like fatigue or difficulty with attention or focus or slight memory difficulty, trouble with word finding, which I might be having in this context of this conversation. Yeah, (laughs) those things certainly are common and can be quite troubling. And of course, let's not forget one's libido. That's probably another frustration for women that they see a dampening of their libido that seems to be coming out of nowhere. A couple of questions, you know, further about these symptoms. So if a woman has a set of symptoms at the onset of menopause or perimenopause, are those the same symptoms that she's gonna carry throughout the years? Or do they kind of change? And you may have a couple of symptoms at the beginning and totally different symptoms by the end. That's a great question because the answer is yes, they can be different. Early menopause, as opposed to later menopause, can be different for women on a case-by-case basis. Generally speaking, many of the symptoms do seem to lessen after four or five years. And I forgot to mention that that perimenopause time can last quite a long time, four to eight years. That's a long time to have these kind of symptoms. And so it depends on the woman. Sometimes those symptoms are worse at the beginning and get better. Others are better at the beginning and get worse at the end. So they don't necessarily have to stay the same throughout the whole process. And let's talk about weight. So for example, when women become pregnant, or they have their periods, they'll say, I still technically weigh the same, but my body is not the same shape. Somehow I'm theoretically the same mass, but I just don't fit into my clothes like I usually do. And then when I'm done being pregnant or done with my period, I still weigh the same weight, but everything's put together where it should be. 
when women go through perimenopause and menopause, you mentioned the pear to the apple, which I think is very helpful. Do they lose the rounder part of the pear or do they keep the pear and then add <laughs> <the> apple? And <laughs> then, <laughs> you know, two fruits. And then, and also with <laughs> is it just a little bit a year for the years of perimenopause and menopause, or is it really more accelerated at the end when you're menopausal? How, how does that go? Because women are really worried about the weight gain and the redistribution of weight, not feeling like themselves. That's difficult to answer, to be honest, because there are so many variables that impact weight. Sleep can impact weight, your stress level, of course, eating habits, exercise, all those things. And then, of course, we can't forget genetics and your life circumstances in midlife. And certainly we're often less physically active in midlife than we were when we were younger. And so we have to take all those factors into account. But I would say that for some, yes, it's a blending of the pear and the apple. And okay. for others, it's not, a, generally speaking, a increase in 30, 40, 50 pounds. That's not typical of menopause. Generally speaking, it is a gradual increase in weight but not a significant amount of weight. I don't want to put a number on it because of course it depends on all those other variables that people are dealing with. I do know this hormonally, when I give women hormone therapy, they don't lose all that weight. So it's not all about the hormonal level in terms of that weight gain. And I don't think scientifically yet, we know why that's triggered in the female body all we know is that it happens and that women shouldn't feel like they're doing something wrong when they st start to see that body shape change. That's very helpful. And I think validating to women and empowering. So before we talk about diagnosing menopause, which I definitely want to get to, if women start to feel these symptoms that you've described so well, what other things could it be so that when they go to their physician or healthcare professional, they make sure that they're getting whole person care and that they're not just assuming that these changes are menopausal? I think it's important for providers to understand because this is a full body experience, right? From head to toe. And we didn't go to joint pain and the risk of palpitations and so on that it's easy to go down these rabbit holes of diagnoses if you haven't from the beginning recognized that menopause or perimenopause could be playing a role. So I think it's important for patients as well as providers to keep that understanding that perimenopause is on that differential list. Yes, it's important to check for thyroid disease as well as your routine screenings Obviously, you're listening for symptoms and looking at signs of particular diseases. But in general, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And so if you see a, a woman who's having menstrual changes, she's in her early 50s or late 40s, and she's hot and bothered, I don't think it's a, so much of a diagnostic dilemma. But I do encourage people to not get narrowed that blame everything on menopause, but certainly don't forget that menopause can be part of the situation. And yeah, you know, women can get menopause and thyroid disease at the same time. 
So it is important to assess fully from a medical standpoint, but recognize that menopause or hormonal change may be having some influence. It's my understanding, Jackie, that a lot of women who use IUDs do not typically menstruate. And so how do they necessarily have a clinical clue of when their menopause or periods are changing? Yeah. And um, in addition to the IUD, uterine ablation is commonly used during that early part of that perimenopausal change because of abnormal uterine bleeding. So all of a sudden you have no period and that's the definition. This was probably a good time also to recognize that we're talking about natural menopause, but there can be, of course, induced menopause, such as an IUD or chemotherapy or other things that result in ovarian loss, right? We have to look again at the symptoms that women are experiencing. Sometimes if there's a question, we might check an FSH or follicle-stimulating hormone, but in general, we don't. And the reason why we don't is because in perimenopause, those hormone levels are, as I said back at the beginning, are going from the first and second floor, right? And so occasionally, if it's in the basement, you might catch it. If a person is truly menopausal, then of course, that levels as far as estradiol is going to be low, but you can't necessarily count on that if they're perimenopausal. And so again, it's about the story, not Mm -hmm. so much about the blood tests. But in those cases, when there is no menses, sometimes checking an FSH or an estradiol can be helpful if you're really not sure. But if symptoms are there, yes, that's probably part of the answer. And then for people who are at risk, if you've had a hysterectomy, but you've maintained your ovaries, or you've had breast reduction surgery or breast cancer, and you've had localized lumpectomy or uh, mastectomies, but no radiation or chemo, do women who have had altered female organs, do they accelerate into menopause if they've maintained their ovaries? If they've maintained their ovaries, it's interesting. There's some research that there's actually some cross-communication between the uterus and the ovaries. And so when the uterus is removed, sometimes the ovaries do sort of say, okay, well, what's the point? And they might lose function a little sooner than they would have otherwise. But I would say in general, if the ovaries are intact, women would go through that perimenopausal, menopausal process as they probably would have. In the challenges with risk, high-risk individuals is more about how to manage their menopausal symptoms, especially if you're not able to use the traditional hormone therapies available. And the good news, however, is that there are non-hormonal options to manage many of these symptoms. So I think physicians as well as patients should be excited to learn about what those options are so that they don't just sort of sit back and quote, grin and bear it as they suffer through those menopausal changes if indeed they are having bothersome symptoms. That's very helpful. So when someone comes to you and you're evaluating for menopause, how do you diagnose it? Is it a clinical history only? Do you always draw labs on a patient? How do you diagnose menopause and what should our primary care professional colleagues who are not, you know, women's health experts and seeing complex cases, how should they approach the average woman for a menopausal evaluation? Good question. 
And I'm not going to try to say that this is easy, just as there are other medical conditions that are not easy either. But in general, it is about the story. It's not about the blood tests. The difficulty in the more challenging times are when you have a patient that's not in her early 50s, let's say, that's in her 40s or even premature in her 30s with symptoms. And you're like, oh, quote unquote, she's too young to go through this menopausal change. That is not true. In those specific cases, unfortunately, checking an FSH or a estradiol level may not be helpful. And so it does really come down to symptom management. If they're having irregular periods, that of course is really the primary clue. It's not just about hot flashes because not everyone has hot flashes, but menstrual changes, hot flashes or night sweats, what we call vasomotor symptoms, sleep disruption, mood disruption, changes in body weight. Those are very typical and that should help most providers say, okay, this may certainly be perimenopausal changes and treat accordingly. A lot of it will depend about the periods because of course, you know, if they're still having relatively regular periods, sometimes it's hard to use certain hormonal products, but we sometimes use SSRIs. We sometimes use, of course, oral contraceptives as a bridge for some women as they continue their journey, let's say, of that hormonal loss. That's very helpful. It's helpful to know that it is more the story and that lab evaluation, it's important to rule out other things like thyroid disease or other concerns you have, but that it's really the story. It's 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 more of a clinical diagnosis than a lab diagnosis. I think that's really helpful. I guess I forgot to mention one of the things that is interesting to me is this idea of sleep apnea also being a confounder uh, such as, as thyroid disease too. And women in general are underdiagnosed with sleep disorder because everybody thinks that they have to be overweight. No, there are thin women who have sleep apnea. And so sleep apnea can cause hot flashes as well, as well as weight gain and fatigue. So again, as you made the point, it is important to rule out these other potential confounders. But at the end of the day, it really is about the story. Well, you mentioned the women who go through menopause prematurely, even in the 30s. Is there a difference between premature menopausal patients and the traditional menopausal patient? Do they experience menopause in a different way or do they have more complications? Okay. So we label women who are less than 40 that go through menopause as premature. Between 40 and 45, that's considered early and over 46 is considered normal. The typical age is 51 or 52. But many women, interesting enough, will still have their periods well into their 50s, okay? I think I saw one woman once who was 61 and just finishing still having regular cycles. Oh, boy. <laughs> I know. So you just never can count anybody out. But when it happens in a young person, that is really quite troubling because we're talking about their postmenopausal life is now decades more in a low estrogen state. 
And we just got done talking about all the parts of the body that are influenced by that. So we really worry about the long-term implications in those young women. So the studies have shown that if women are oophorectomized, when their ovaries are removed before age 45, that they are actually at greater risk for osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, stroke, even dementia. And so it is very important to be offering those ladies hormone therapy unless there's a clear contraindication. Just having a family history of breast cancer is not a good enough reason to avoid hormone therapy in those women, which unfortunately has happened because, you know, for the last 20 years, there's been a lot of misunderstanding that hormone therapy is a direct line to breast cancer. And so people have really avoided using hormone therapy in women. And it really bothers me when it's that young woman, because she's probably at the, at most risk in the long term. And that might shock these women because a lot of women purposely plan family planning for children in their 30s or perhaps even early 40s. Imagine having the surprise of, well, sorry, you're no longer able to have children. That must just be devastating. Um, unfortunately, it is. And especially this day and age, I'm seeing them pretty routinely in the office. They're now 38. They got money in the bank. They're ready to have a, a family just to all of a sudden recognize that they can't. It is very devastating. So I do encourage women, professional women especially, not to necessarily delay their child rearing, but if they do plan to do that, consider ovarian preservation in some form. I think, you know, we all count on, oh, well, we'll be able to get pregnant, but it's not a guarantee. Uh, and so women have to take that into account when they're planning their futures. Yeah, absolutely. The irony that when we're younger, a lot of women worry about having a pregnancy. And then as we age and want to have pregnancy, sometimes women can't. So it's a very good point. The bottom line is women must learn and know what can happen in these processes. No, not everything may happen with regards to the menopausal symptoms, but we need to be educated. Uh, our providers need to be educated so that they are able to help women make the right choices for themselves throughout their lifespan. Yeah, that's wonderful. Jackie, very well said. Any other tips or tricks that you'd like to talk about to empower our professionals and colleagues and patients regarding menopause? Um, I do think that listening and validating is important because I've been doing women's health now and people say, well, what's the difference between talking to women and talking to men? And Don, as you know, I have a house full of men. I'm a mother of three boys and also have a husband. So I get a nice balance in life in that I get to talk to women all day and talk to the guys at night. There is a difference in talking to women. Women, they want to be informed. They don't necessarily need you to fix everything, but they do want to be heard. And so I think it's important for women to advocate for themselves because sometimes you know yourself best and providers have to be willing to listen and work through it. It certainly is better this climate in medical care that it's about shared decision-making because it is a process of working together with your patient to give them the information and make 
intelligent decisions about how you move forward in caring for them. And I, I do think that when patients are more informed, we're better at our job. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you do have lovely gentlemen in your home, for sure. <laughs> and I do agree that a lot, a lot of women uh, do not take time to take care of themselves because they take care of everyone else and they don't feel that they're worthy of time and attention or they don't want to bother anyone or they're worried that someone will devalue their concerns and say that it's all psychological or self-induced. And so thank you for encouraging our female patients to speak up. And also, you know, men sometimes have similar concerns. And while women's health specialists usually don't care for men, they might as partners of the female patient, our urology colleagues can help our male patients with men's health and empowering them as well. I definitely agree. Yeah. Well, Dr. Thielen, it's been great to spend time with you today. I really appreciate talking with you and learning from you, as do our colleagues and our patients. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me.